As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In lots of European countries, there's a shift away from the old political establishment. A new left-wing party that sprung up in Germany suggests that process might be speeding up. We look at the grab bag of populist policies that'll soon be on the ballot. And why the meddling of the video assistant referee, or VAR, is killing the vibe at football matches. First up, though. Vietnam is proving pretty popular with the world politicians. Last year, it was the only country that received visits from the leaders of the world's two biggest economies. President Joe Biden stopped off in September. Vietnam is a critical power in the world and a bellwether in this vital region. And I look forward to continuing this new chapter in the story of our nation. Then Xi Jinping was hot in his heels. The Chinese president is concerned about growing Western influence in the region and is keen to raise China's status in Vietnam. So what makes this country of 100 million so attractive? Vietnam is caught between China, its giant neighbor, and America. And those two countries are getting on increasingly badly. And you might think that that would cause Vietnam problems. But in fact, it's playing a very clever game, balancing the two off against each other. Robert Guest is a deputy editor at The Economist. So it needs China for its trade relations, but it also wants to be defended against China because China has territorial ambitions to grab large chunks of the sea that actually belong to Vietnam. So it's being very friendly with America as well. They're in a wonderful position. All of geopolitics and the global economy is aligned to help Vietnam grow even faster than it's doing at the moment. Why is Vietnam so well positioned to capitalise on this? So Vietnam has a lot going for it economically. Since it gave up on communism in the mid-1990s and started opening, the economy has been booming. It's got a relatively well-educated population. It's got okay infrastructure. Wage costs in factories are about half what they are in China. And for a lot of companies, they're saying, we want to move some of our production out of China. And Vietnam, it's very close to China. And so you'll find that a lot of times it's the same companies, the Western companies and indeed their Chinese suppliers and subcontractors who move just across the border into Vietnam and make stuff there. And that gets round what are already quite high trade barriers between America 
and China, and it's also the expectation that those trade barriers will go up. Whether that actually reduces America's dependence on Chinese supply chains is an open question. But it certainly gets around the letter of the law, and companies want to spread their bets. They can't totally decouple from China, but they quite often pursue a strategy that's called China plus one. So you have some of your manufacturing in China and some of it somewhere else. And that means it's not just companies interested in Vietnam, but lots of governments. And how are America and China in particular wooing Vietnam? China is doing quite a bad job of wooing Vietnam. The two countries ought to be very friendly with each other because they're both run by the same kind of government. It's both sort of communist parties with sort of complete political dominance, one-party state. But the difference is that the Chinese government has ambitions of regional and even global hegemony. So China tends to be quite bullying in its attitude to Vietnam, and that's extremely resented in Vietnam, whereas America's been much smarter, even though they fought a war quite recently. Relations are extremely good because both sides see it as a win-win commercial relationship. But also the Vietnamese government is very keen to have America on side to deter Chinese expansionism. And the Americans are very happy to give a bit of help to Vietnam, some Coast Guard vessels, which are actually pretty serious military ships. And not a formal alliance, because Vietnam doesn't do that. They want to upset China too much. But certainly a sort of strong sense that America has Vietnam's back. So what's in it for America and American firms? So under Joe Biden, America has pursued a policy of trying to have as many allies as possible to help it in the great power rivalry with China. And America's got a very large network of alliances, and Vietnam's not part of that, but it is part of the broader network of of countries that are reasonably friendly to the United States, and it likes being on reasonably good terms with countries that are threatened by China. I mean, I talked to a lot of people running factories in Vietnam. They tended not to want to be quoted by name because it's still an authoritarian society, but they all quoted pretty much the same things that were good about doing business there. Firstly, a large, reasonably well-educated workforce that's significantly cheaper than the one in China. And secondly, a government that's really keen on foreign investment. You see they give both help in terms of cheap land and tax breaks, and you can see how welcoming Vietnam is to trade with the external world just by the volume of trade. So in 2022, trade was equivalent to an eye-popping 186% of GDP. That's vastly higher than it is in any other Southeast Asian country. This is a place that is really open for business. So Robert, what's stopping Vietnam from taking full advantage here? The thing holding it back and the complaint that everybody has on the ground there is that the government is paralysed by indecision. They're expecting a transition of power. The general secretary of the Communist Party has to stand down by 2026. He's also very old. He's like 79. So lots of things that matter, like approval for new energy projects, new roads, the decisions are not being made. And they have to be because in a sort of rapidly growing economy, you need energy and you also need green energy. That's what a lot of the manufacturers are demanding. And the air in Hanoi is terrible, so they clearly need to move away from coal and towards things like wind and solar. But the go-ahead for these projects is not being given. People are worried that they might make the wrong decision, which will get them in the trouble with the next administration, whoever that is, or that they might give the green light to a project which turns out to have some corruption involved in it, in which case they may end up losing their job or worse. And that's a terrible shame because, you know, Vietnam has this opportunity to get rich. 
probably better place than any other country in the world at the moment to get rich. But that window is not going to be open forever. It's going to get much older in the future. The workforce is going to start shrinking in the late 2030s. And you can't assume that US-China tensions will continue at the same pace forever. So it really is Vietnam's moment. It's a golden opportunity. But in order to seize it, its government needs to be much more nimble and responsive. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ori. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Wir recht in Anspruch nehmen zu demonstrieren und das auch so lange machen werden, bis wir jetzt zu Ergebnissen kommen. The year has not started well for the traffic light coalition that runs Germany. It's a three-party coalition. They call it the traffic light because of the colors of the different parties. And it has not been good for real traffic either. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's Berlin bureau chief. There are angry farmers all across the country blocking roads and honking and making a lot of noise. But also train drivers have held a national strike. Es ist der längste Streik des laufenden Tarifstreits. Seit vergangener Nacht steht der Zugverkehr in Deutschland wieder einmal weitgehend still. Opinion polls show that about 82% of Germans are dissatisfied with this government, which is a really high number. And of course that creates an opportunity for new players. Sie erleben einen Bundeskanzler, der sprachlos wirkt, selbst wenn er lange Reden hält. Sarah Wagenknecht, who's a 54-year-old left-wing populist, launched a completely new party, which she's called the Zahra Wagenknecht Alliance for Reason and Fairness. At her press conference, Wagenknecht just tore into the current coalition and accused their leaders of dividing Germany and of leaving the people behind. Die Demokratie in unserem Land wird in erster Linie gefährdet durch eine Politik, von der sich immer mehr Menschen im Stich gelassen oder aber vor den Kopf gestoßen fühlen. She also declared that she backed the farmers protests that are playing out across Germany, saying that the government has no plan other than to take more money out of citizens pockets. aus der Tasche zu ziehen, die zu großen Teilen tatsächlich So with the dissatisfaction among the the electorate really high, the new party might actually grow to become a strong political force. Well, tell me about the party. Where did it come from? What does it stand for? Well, it has that long title, but BSW is the sort of shortened German acronym for it. And essentially, it's a breakaway from the mainstream leftist party called Die Linke. In October, Ms. Wagenknecht defected, along with several other members, from the Die Linke party, the leftist party. And her new party is made up of, of all those defected members, plus some new additions. And her new party is a kind of interesting beast because on, on economics, it's left, pretty much standard left wing. It demands more social spending, calls for more job security, higher wages, that sort of thing. But it's right wing in the sense that it also demands tighter controls on immigration and a tougher line on asylum. There's been a rise in the number of asylum seekers in Germany. And the party is also pro-Russia and anti-NATO and wants to send less German aid to Ukraine. 
It's sort of a strange mix of policies then for a, a breakaway leftist party. Yes, it seems like a very odd mixture, but it could appeal to what is a really angry and increasingly fragmented electorate. Uh, there was a revealing poll that showed that if people were asked to vote in a national election, who would they vote for now? And this gave BSW, Wagenknecht's party, 14%, which is the same amount as was given to the Social Democrats of the Chancellor, Olaf Scholz. And of course, Social Democrats are a 150-year-old party, and they're now polling evenly with a party that was just started a couple of weeks ago. And Wagenknecht, she could have a strong appeal, particularly in East Germany, which has quite different voting patterns from the rest of Germany. There's a kind of fear of immigration in the East and a sense of alienation from the ruling elite. And also compared to the rest of Germany, a lot of East Germans still share Ms. Wagenknecht's suspicions of the West. They, they tend to blame Ukraine instead of Russia for provoking the war in Ukraine. But that isn't actually the main attraction of Wagenknecht for East Germans. According to polls, among those who would consider voting for her, 40% say it's because of disappointment with the other parties. What about the, the party leader, Ms. Wagenknecht? What is it about her that might be so appealing to those voters? Well, she is herself an East German. She was raised in East Berlin, and she actually remained a committed communist even after the fall of the wall, which is unusual even for an East German to you know, continue to be a communist. And in university, she studied Marxist economics and eventually earned a doctorate in philosophy. But she looks less like a Stalinist commissar and more like a society hostess. She has a kind of permatan with the sort of perfect arched eyebrows. And she likes to wear these very flashy colored tailored suits with zip collars. And she's kind of made a career of going her own way and standing out. She has a lot of poise and, you know, very good diction and strong communication skills. So she's really a force to be reckoned with as a, a populist politician. A force that could kind of upend the, the, the whole landscape of German politics, do you think? Well, like elsewhere in Europe, there's been a, a big long-term drift of voters in Germany away from the old uh, traditional parties. And the Wagenknecht phenomenon suggests this just might be accelerating. You know, her new party has already done a lot of damage to Die Linke, the, the leftist umbrella party that she defected from. And it looks like Die Linke is probably going to fall under the 5% threshold that parties need in Germany to get into parliament. But it's not just the left that Wagenknecht's party threatens. A lot of her talking points are the same kind of impulses that have, in recent years, attracted a lot of support to another relatively new party, which is the hard right alternative for Germany, or AFD, which is now in second place in popularity nationwide in Germany. Some polls show them getting over 22% of a possible vote in a national election. But it looks like the BSW, Wagenknecht's party, could eat into some of that. And, you know, although the two parties... The AFD and the BSW are opposite poles on the political spectrum, far right, far left. Actually, a lot of pundits think that Wagenknecht could draw more voters away from the AFD than from mainstream parties, you know, in the middle. And one survey found that while 55% of the AFD supporters and 40% of Die Linke's would consider voting for BSW, the proportion in other parties was much less, like below 20%. So Wagenknecht's voters are likely to come from those two parties and not from the middle of the German spectrum. So when will this be put to an, an actual electoral test, though, to go beyond just polling numbers? 
Well, there are two important votes coming up this year, big opportunities for the BSW. The first one is the European Parliament election, which is set for June. That gives the party six months to kind of campaign. And what's interesting about the European Parliament vote is that German voters have tended to see this election once every five years for the European Parliament as a less serious vote than the national election. And for that reason, they tend to use it as a chance to experiment in their vote or to protest. And that would be really good for Wagenknecht's new party. Uh, so it might score very strongly in the European Parliament vote. And then later in the summer, actually in September, three states in eastern Germany all go to the polls, Brandenburg, Saxony and Thuringia. And those are exactly the places where Wagenknecht has a lot of appeal. So her party has a big place to grandstand this year. So, you know, for now, her party looks tiny. I mean, it's only got nine MPs in the German Bundestag or parliament out of 736. So it really is just a minnow. But by the time of Germany's next national election, which is in 2025, it's quite possible that her upstart party could be a significant force in German politics. And in fact, the whole political landscape could be rather different, much more fragmented, and with a lot of small parties rather than just a few big ones. Max, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Manchester United fans packed into the away end for a match against West Ham in 2014 will remember the moment vividly. Bill Ridges is a digital editor for The Economist and a long-suffering football fan. Wayne Rooney receives a bouncing ball off the halfway line. He bustles past the defender, spots the goalkeeper off his line, and lets fly from 50 yards. Cue pandemonium in the away end. There are few things that prompt as much joy as watching your team score a goal. Well, that used to be the case. If Rooney's goal had occurred this year, it would have looked pretty different. Let's replay it. Moments before the strike, there's a hint of a nudge on the defender. Enough contact to be a foul, fans can't be sure. But what they do know is that a video assistant referee, or VAR, will be checking from a pod in a London industrial estate. They have to park their joy. Slow motion replays are poured over. Minutes pass. Eventually the goal is allowed. But the moment for spontaneous rapture has passed. Fans once knew immediately whether a goal had been scored. Today, no one can be sure until the players kick off to restart the game. Okay, Bill, I sense some personal unhappiness here. But tell me, when did VAR get introduced to football games? After some lower-level trials, the first major leagues to introduce VAR was Germany's Bundesliga and Italy's Serie A, both in the 2017-2018 season. England's Premier League then followed in 2019. Not long after VAR was introduced, there was a moment of controversy when Gabriel Jesus scored a goal during a game between Manchester City and West Ham. The whole crowd cheer. But then a VAR check flashes up onto the stadium screens and screens back at home. 3D images, so they're taking the point from basically his left armpit. Oh, so close, isn't it? No goal yet. The goal is disallowed from offside. These days, remote referees monitor offsides in the lead-up to a goal if a handball or foul has been committed in the 18-yard box, reckless tackles and violent behaviour that might lead to a red card. On its introduction, it seemed like an obvious advance. 
pundits and managers and fans expressed bemusement at how, when an official made a howler, people watching replays on televisions around the world would know within minutes. Referees, everyone agreed, should have access to the same technology. In 2017, a survey of British fans by the Football Supporters Association showed that three quarters were in favour of introducing VAR. But then, as you say, there are some pretty big disadvantages to this system. Yeah, it seems pretty clear now that the idea was based on misconceptions. It was introduced to overturn egregious errors, but inevitably, moaning managers and outraged pundits would soon demand that no on-field mistakes could be left uncorrected. And so the system's margin of error had to appear to be close to zero, no matter how much time it took to make decisions. There was a case in October when VAR spent five minutes trying to find a reason to chalk off a goal in a game between Bournemouth and Burnley. For that reason, it's lost popularity. Today, fans like me who go to games regularly, I've been going to see Tottenham Hotspur for nearly 40 years, find that we can no longer spontaneously celebrate a goal and it's sucking the joy out of the football experience. The reason you go to a game is in order to feel that joy when your side has scored. But of course, you can never really now celebrate a goal because you know that VAR is going to check it. And so you don't celebrate in case you look a fool. OK, to be fair, that does sound quite annoying. Yes, and it's no surprise really that it's lost popularity. Today, the Football Supporters Association finds that only a quarter of fans like having video referees monitoring a game. But I think more fundamentally, the system misconstrues the nature of football's laws. How so? Other than with respect to line calls, for example, whether the ball has crossed the goal line, the rules of the game are subjective. Even offside, which was introduced to prevent attackers gaining an advantage by stationing themselves by a goal, which is sometimes known as goal-hanging, I think should be somewhat subjective. A striker who loiters a yard or two further upfield than the last defender is clearly acting unfairly and trying to gain advantage. One whose knee flexes a few centimetres beyond the opponent's, as we heard earlier in that Gabriel Jesus clip, is not. But it's that kind of measurement of centimetres that VAR will spend an age on in order to achieve objective perfection. And so I think it's better now that having experimented with VAR, that we should go back to allowing the on-field officials to make real-time decisions without interference from video referees. So, Bill, are you suggesting that we do away with the whole system entirely? I don't think we should, actually. No, I think there is a way that it actually could make football supporters' lives even more happy. The one place I think it could still be used is overturning false negatives. So when the referee disallows a goal... I think there's enough time for a quick review to see whether it actually should have been given after all. I mean, maybe the striker wasn't offside or maybe the ball bounced into the net off their shoulder rather than their arm. And in that way, actually, VAR could add to the stock of sporting happiness by giving fans a sort of unexpected jolt of joy rather than, as it is now, constantly depleting it. Bill, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ara. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Our gift to you for the month of February is, drumroll please, 50% off Economist Podcast Plus. 
For less than $2.50 a month, you can get an annual or a two-year subscription to our premium shows like the new weekend edition of The Intelligence, our weekly podcasts on business, China, American politics, and everything in between. If I've enticed you, follow the link in the show notes to take advantage of this limited offer or simply search Economist Podcast Plus online. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.